Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. You have all made it to the You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 203. Your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. First episode of 2019. I'm thrilled to bring it to you. Great to be back for another year. I am rapidly approaching my fifth year of existence. Can you believe it? Five years of conversations with great people. And I've said this before, and I will say it again. If I am trying to do one thing, it is trying to improve the way we connect with each other, the way we talk to each other, the way we understand each other, building empathy, creating a bridge where none existed before, which is why I'm thrilled to kick off 2019 with this week's guest. I've got Dr. Martine Carcasson. He is a full professor at Colorado State University and also the director of the Center for Public Deliberation up there. I met Martine during my undergraduate. He started at CSU in about 2003. I took a class of his, really liked it, hit it off with him immediately, ended up going to grad school, and have sort of tangentially stayed connected with him ever since. He reached out to me a couple of months ago and said, hey, I'm giving a talk down in Denver here in a couple of months, and I'd love for you to attend, and then I'd love to be a guest on your show if you're willing to have me. Are you kidding me, Dr. Carcasson? I would love to have you on my show. I will talk to you anytime. And this episode does not disappoint. Because what Martine is doing is right in my wheelhouse. It involves rhetoric. It involves civic engagement. It involves complex problems. It involves solving those problems potentially. It involves bringing people together. It is everything that I hope to do in my own way. So we're sort of on parallel tracks. And what's funny is when you listen to us talk, we had a very similar origin story. We both kind of started as business majors and then took a speech class and go, hey, you know what? This is actually a lot more fun. This is a lot better had professors that encouraged us to go to grad school, and we ended up going on. I stopped at my master's program, he got his PhD, and now he is changing the game in Fort Collins and all across the country as he goes to other cities and replicates this model. And one of the things he says, and he didn't say this during the show, but what he said during his talk was he can't go and be the person who facilitates these conversations in other cities. He doesn't live there. It needs to be a local solution. It needs to be the people who live there coming together on their own terms. He can show you the roadmap. He can show you the blueprint, but he can't do it for you. It's a lot like Morpheus in the Matrix, I guess, which feels weird now that I'm saying that out loud, but kind of makes sense. I can only show you the door. You have to walk through it. And you know, that might be a good metaphor for academia as well. Because it took me a long time to realize that the theory I was working on wasn't just some ivory tower stuff. It had a lot of practicality. And I use it every single day in my professional life. The theory that I learned as a communications major at Colorado State University informs virtually everything that I do in my career. And that is amazing. And I hope that no matter what your degree is in, 
you can say the same thing. I've got links to the work of Dr. Carcasson on the companion blog piece that's available at johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. Be sure to check out Martin's work and find out more about what he's doing. Before we get to this week's conversation, I hope you enjoyed his first job episode that came out on Mondays. That's a fun little mini-series that I do with each of my guests every time I remember. Unfortunately, I've forgotten a number of times, but it's a nice snapshot into the first jobs of people, and I concluded 2018 with a series of four first jobs. First jobs go up on Mondays. New episodes go up on Wednesdays. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and virtually everywhere else podcasts are available. Now then, let's get to the first episode of 2019. It's Dr. Martin Carcasson. He is full professor at Colorado State University. He's also the director of the Center for Public Deliberation, and his episode starts right now. So I'm a 2-2 load, so every semester I teach, it's called Applied Deliberative Techniques. So it's a special class for the student facilitators that they actually have to apply for. So we have quality control. Okay. And I normally have a second class, but this semester my second class was bought out by an organization. So okay. I only had one class. Wow. All right. So that's pretty nice. And then most of what you're doing, your time is taken up by CBD, right? Yeah. I mean, so technically my overall job is 50% teaching, 35% research, and 15% service. Do you and negotiate that or is that common? Well, that's that's the, the typical for CSU. Okay. Uh, I actually, we negotiated a little bit. So now my job is 50% teaching, 25% research, and 25% service since I do so much service. Okay. And service for faculty is service to your department, college, university, discipline, and community. Okay. Uh, so then... Two two loads. So one of my classes is always CBD, and most of my service. So about fifty percent of my job technically is tied to the CBD. Okay. Then twenty five percent is research, which is tied to the CBD indirectly, and then I have one other class a semester. Okay. But even that now is is potentially I get out, I get bought out a lot uh, and do some other stuff. So. Right, because I mean you're you're getting a lot of acclaim for Center for Public Deliberation, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's seen when I started it twelve years ago. As far as I know, it was the old, there's organizations like it that do what we do. We were the first ones, as far as I knew, that actually had dedicated coursework. Like students, some had student volunteers, or students would come to a workshop. But our, our whole program is organized around the students, student centric. Now that's been replicated, so I've actually you know helped start a lot of other centers like it across the country. Uh, but we're kind of known as the first, and, and right. really since we were the first, and, and we've been able to build up capacity. You know, we do more than most. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so 12 years ago, that was right about the time I was leaving. Because I, di- I did yeah. master's from 04 to 06. Yeah. Yeah, no, it started in fall of 06 was the first semester of the CBD. So I just missed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, couldn't have got it together sooner, could you? <laughs> yeah, so. I actually, so the spring of 06, while you were there, uh-huh. I taught the class for the first time. Okay. But then I, re- so first it was just a regular class. Anyone could sign up for it. And it was just one semester. Okay. And it bombed. Really? Because I realized in one semester, well, two things. One semester wasn't enough to train students and get them good enough. And I also realized half the students were like slackers that were happy with a C. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so when the class failed, what I figured out is like, okay, if I have quality control, uh-huh. you know, so if the students have to apply and I pick, and plus uh-huh. it got smaller, so I picked right. 15 a semester instead of 24. Okay. Uh, but then they also, for the program, it's two semesters long. Okay. So it's a three-credit hour their first semester, and then they come back to do practical in their second so every semester I have the students from the semester before returning, 
that know what they're doing and can help me train the new students. Okay. And then, and then they can actually repeat the second semester. So I have some students that stay for four, five, six semesters. Okay. And just repeat the practicum. All right. So this is Dr. Martine Carcasson. Are you assistant professor, full professor? I'm a full professor. You're full professor yeah. at uh, Colorado State University, also the head of the Center for Public Deliberation. I just heard you speak to the Metro North Chamber of Commerce. Was that like a leadership group? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that was a tremendous talk. One you said you've done like 200 times at this point, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the talk is essentially my first day of class for my students, right? All right. It's really establishing the why, you know, the, the theory behind the CBD. And then the rest of the semester is okay, actually doing it. Uh, but then I started kind of giving the talk in different places. I work a lot with individual cities. So I give that talk. Like I've given that talk to the Denver, the Metro Mayor's Caucus, so all the Denver mayors in the room. Um, I work with a lot of school boards, and then I work a lot. I do a lot of work at the Denver Leadership Foundation, so their leadership class, um, and a lot of parent engagement groups. So, okay. Yeah. So, and that all kind of files under service for you. Like, yeah, in a way. Okay. Yeah. And, and sometimes I am, I'm paid to give the talk. In oh, sure. Places, yeah, so yeah. So it's more of an independent kind of consulting. Kind okay. Of you talked about yourself as, uh, what was it, a pracademic? A, yeah, pracademic. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of a combination. I mean, I am an academic. I'm a tenured professor. Yeah. Right? Um, part of my job is, is officially research and so forth. When, when you but, came to CSU... You hadn't defended your dissertation yet, though, right? Right. Yeah, I was supposed to. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, Were they I got hired. Um, not necessarily, and, and partly, you know, my, my salary was lower my first year. Okay. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it took until the the summer after for me to actually have the time to really kind of dig in and, and, and get it done. So okay. Um, my my tenure clock didn't start until a year in. Yeah. Oh, funny. I remember that, and I remember when you first came. I took a class from you. So this would have been like 03, and I want to say it was rhetoric of social movements. It was either that or persuasion. No, it wasn't. It wouldn't have been. Okay, yeah. Because I remember, and I really liked that class, and I used the paper I wrote as part of my submission packet to grad school because I did one on Cesar Chavez, which uh, I I knew nothing about beforehand, and you gave us this like list of all all these different things, and you solicited input. So I mean, you were sort of doing this before uh, you were you were actually doing it. And I got so into it, and I was proud of that paper because I, I, I knew nothing of Cesar Chavez beforehand outside of that joke on The Simpsons where Cesar <laughs> Chavez visits Homer. And he goes, why do you look like Cesar Romero? And Homer goes, Cause you, no, Cesar Chavez goes, because you don't know what Cesar Chavez looks like. <laughs> and, so I, and I managed to work that into my presentation. I saw you yeah. laugh in the back. I'm like, he's all right. <laughs> so... But from there, yeah, like we just we kind of hit it off, no. which uh, which was cool because I wasn't exactly in your you know scholarship wheelhouse. You know, I wasn't talking a lot about argumentation. I wasn't talking about social movements. Mine was more media focused. No. But what I realized was I was gearing up for that. So I always had this affinity for what you were doing because I care very deeply about the way we talk to each other. Yeah. And so when you told me you were pivoting from being kind of a strict academic to today was the first day I heard you say a pracademic, yeah. I go, that's really cool. And that's kind of what we need. Yeah. So what was it like starting that and how did you create it? How, like what was the process like to pivot to that and what was the response? Yeah. Partly where it started, so the job description that, that I applied for and got the job at CSU was was to kind of take over. So David Vansell, who was the, the debate, well, was a debate coach for a while. Uh, he was argumentation scholar, was retiring. Right. So I was essentially kind of taking his line. And I actually dug this up like uh, a few years ago when we had the 10-year anniversary of the center. Uh, so there was like 10 job responsibilities my job. Like number seven was develop some sort of program that gets students involved in local issues. Oh, cool. And the origin of that was we used to have a debate team. 
but they killed the debate team a couple years before I got there. I know. My wife was pissed uh, because she was on scholarship. No, yeah. And, and part of this was, uh, you know, Sidney Griffin's research in the department was, was anti-kind of persuasion and, you know, uh, it was oh, more yeah, that invitational. You know, like, yeah, yeah, so the debate was much more kind of uh, aggressive. Yeah, the invitational stuff. But then also they found out, you know, most of the debate students were not our majors. They were high school debate, you know. Oh, funny. And, and a debate coach is a bad job. So they're always hiring a new debate coach every other year. You know, so they finally said, you know, this doesn't seem to fit our department. Right, just the revolving but, door. Yeah, but what they liked about the debate team was it would have these public debates in the community, right? So that was what turned into that line. They kind of promised the college, we'll replace the debate team with something. And in some okay. ways, the CPD kind of came out of that in an odd way. And, and part of the story is, I, so I did a paper on President Clinton's race initiative at the beginning of his second term, okay. right? So was that 96 or 98? 96, yeah. Um, and uh, so I was mainly doing, because I was a presidential rhetoric scholar. I was analyzing what presidents talked about and how they used evidence and logic. That was your dissertation, uh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. My dissertation was on poverty issues, but that was a, okay. a, an individual paper I did on Clinton. Uh, but as I was doing that research on how he was talking about race in his, his, his talks and his speeches, the White House had developed materials on how to have a conversation about race that they were sending out to communities. Oh, so wow. I was analyzing okay. that as part of my research, and that's what introduced me to dialogue and deliberation. And I was like, wait a second, like, this is what my students need, right? Yeah. This debate stuff wasn't, you know, is useful, but it's not helping us in some ways. So that's when I started changing the debate class I was in charge of to be both a debate, dialogue, and deliberation class in a broader skill set. And that was working really well in the classroom, I felt. I was getting students to talk about issues in much more nuanced ways and interesting yeah. ways. So then the CBD became, okay, this works in a classroom when I have grade power over them, but they don't talk the way I want them to talk, they get a bad grade. I'm like, can we get this to work in the community? Yeah. So the CBD became, okay, you've taken this basic class on the skills. Let's see if we can do this in the community. Okay. And I, from the get-go, was there resistance to it? Was it well-received? Uh, no, it was, it was much more well-received than I thought. Okay. I, I truly thought my students and I would pick a topic and get a room in the Hilton, and hopefully we get 20 people to show up sure, for the conversation. Yeah. But and I was and going, it's, it's almost more of a thought experiment than solving yeah. actual problems, right? Well, and, uh, that's what I thought it would be. I, I thought yeah, that's what, what I mean. Yeah. would be more educational, right? Sure. Let's just get you – know, I was working a lot with an organization called National Issues Forum, NIF, that creates these national discussion guides on tough issues. Um, you know, so that was the material that we used for training. And most of those were these just, you know, it was a national issue. Was social, they weren't right. expecting a, an idea that comes up with this form at the library is going to change the social security system. Right. It was just, but. So it's more of an abstraction at that point, right? Well, if, if it's a national issue. Yeah. But what happened is uh, I was going for a grant that required me to have an advisory board. Right, so I cold called like the school district and the city and the League of Women Voters just to tell them like I'm a communication professor. Yeah. I'm starting this organization trying to elevate the quality of public discourse. Now I'd love your name, you know, and basically, I mean, I, I literally told them like you don't really have to do anything. I just need your name, you know, on this form. Well, when I called the school district, Ellen Laban was the communications director for the school district. That first conversation, she's like. We have to run this meeting in like three weeks. You want to help us run it? <laughs> yeah. So I ran it and it went well. And they, she brought me back two weeks later saying, we've got this huge controversial issue about changing grade configuration. You want to help us with that? So the second semester of the CBD, we were running like this hugely controversial thing that the school district was listening to the results of it. That my student, we had 700 people come over six nights wow. to this, this high profile thing. And then from that, we got five other, pro, you know, so we never actually did these educational just for the sake of conversation. <laughs> From the very beginning, these were, you know, the United Way uh, wanted us to do this big poverty project with the Coloradan. You know, now we do all this stuff for the city. So the way I tell that story is like clearly there is this void. Like 
Yeah. People wanted better conversations, and, and we just gave them a taste of it, and it kind of took off from there. That's amazing. And, and to quote the West Wing, right from the get-go, you were playing with live ammo. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, these were real issues with, with people with power listening um, in some important ways. Is this what you always wanted to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, is uh, I, I graduated undergrad with, with speech communication. Actually, I went to school to be a business major. I happened to take so a public I. speaking class my first semester, and it seemed much more interesting. So I switched to communication studies. Uh, but I, I went to I went to school to get a piece of paper. I, my parents are, are small business owners. I'm okay. a, I just assumed from the beginning I'm just going to have a small business. My brother started working for State Farm while I was an undergrad, so okay. he got me an internship. So before my senior year, I had a, a, a summer internship with State Farm. Before I left, they offered me a job. What were you doing there? Uh, I was a, I, I worked in administrative, so I did everything except insurance. Okay. So it's like running company cars, uh, getting spaces. Okay. When there's a big storm and 2,000 people come to Dallas, it was in Dallas, Texas. Oh, ops and logistics, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I was doing all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I worked there for a year and a half. Um, and then basically decided, you know, well, part of it is State Farm's a national company that – to make my way up in State Farm is I'd have to move every two years to a new community. Oh, yeah. It's like and the I, Army, right? Yeah. And I didn't want a, a, a company deciding where I live the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, so I had an offer from, from A&M to go back to get my master's for free. They had a fellowship for me. So I said, you know, I'll go back, get my master's. Wait, you said you had an offer. Did you apply for that? Yeah. I mean, I, I did well as an undergrad. Sure. You know, so, so, and I had... I had some interest in grad school before I left. One professor in particular, uh, sure. uh, you know, so they had, they had offered me, and then I deferred. So then the second year, I said, you know what? I'll go back. I'll get my master's. Do you want to uh, name drop him? Who is it? Uh, uh, Rick Rigsby. Okay. He's actually, he actually went viral a couple of years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, so people Google Rick Rigsby. He's a, he's a minister and a communication professor and motivational speaker and that kind of stuff. But kind of like the story you told about the paper you wrote for my class, yeah. it was my last semester of undergrad was the first time a professor inspired me. And I wrote a prod, I wrote a paper on Jackie Robinson's influence in the civil rights movement. Oh, cool! So it was yeah. a social movements class, just like <laughs> yours. And it was the first time that I like it wasn't just to get the grade. Yeah. I, I wanted like crazy to impress this professor, mm-hmm. and got so interested. And I remember he, I was taking my very last final ever. Like I never have to take school again. <laughs> and he passed back our papers and had some really nice comments on my paper. Uh-huh. And one of the comments was, "You should really consider grad school." <laughs> so I went to talk to him afterwards. I put the seat in. But yeah, after a year and a half of State Farm, I'm like, I'm going to go back to grad school. Yeah. I assumed I would get a master's in com to be like a, a consultant. I had a, a few of my friends worked for like a censure, like organizational right. consulting. Uh, my first semester. Uh, or like what I'm doing now as yeah. a communications yeah. consultant yeah. with a master's yeah. degree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my first semester, I took an orcom class and then I took a presidential rhetoric class because it was election year. And I'm like, oh, I'll be interesting. And I found out pretty quickly I, I loved reading for the presidential rhetoric and I hated the orcom stuff. Uh, but then I realized if I'm doing orcom, I mean, if I'm doing rhetoric in, in, in politics, it's like I didn't want to be a speech writer, right? right? So I'm like, if I do this, I have to go to PhD. So actually, what I I wrote a paper on Herbert Hoover. Okay. Like, what did Herbert Hoover say during the Great Depression? It just seemed interesting, and I wanted to do something different that not everyone, you know. That does sound interesting. So I wrote that paper. I remember turning that paper in. To, and the professor was Marty Methurst, like one of the biggest names, impression to rhetoric in the, in the, in the field. Uh, I remember thinking, if that paper wasn't really, really good, like I don't think I'm coming back. Yeah. Because right? I'm not going to stay for PhD if I, I have to be good. I have yeah. To get if a I job. clank this one, right? Uh, and he actually, so when I got the comments back, they were nice. He actually said, "You should send this in." I sent it in to Presidential Rhetoric Quarterly. A month later, I get a letter back saying, we love your essay. We're publishing it. Wow. Here's two or three things. You know, the easiest publication I've ever had. <laughs> I found out two years later that an editor had kind of crapped out. 
Uh, so they had to take it over, uh, uh, and they were two issues behind, and so they were accepting anything that was half decent. <laughs> so it was just this perfect well, timing, uh, well, but ser- it convinced me to stay to get my PhD. Serendipity matters sometimes. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> I, mean, uh, I remember I met Kyle Simmons during undergrad, and he started talking to me about grad school, and I wasn't ready to get a job yet. And uh, he's like, did you know they pay you and you teach public speaking? I'm like, you get to teach public speaking? <laughs> yeah. And I remember being really excited by that because I, I loved my public speaking class. I took that, and anyone who's listened to this show for any length of time has heard me tell this story. But I'm looking at that class. I'm bored to tears by all my business classes. And I go, okay, what are the first two letters at the beginning of this class? I'm like, can you major in this? Yeah. And I, I go to the course book and I read the description of what it is. I'm like, you can major in this. And this sounds awesome. <laughs> That's exactly uh, what I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but Kyle told me, he's like, they pay you to go to school. I'm like, get out of here. They pay you. Yeah. And I like, and I just keep doing this scholarship that I enjoy. Like I write papers about movies I find interesting and concepts and, uh, you know, the way we communicate with each other and connect and deepen our humanity. Yeah. Okay. I'm in. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I, God, that's fantastic. And it's funny that we had a very similar bent. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go be a business major. That was my first major, too. No, when I, when I went up to my professor's office after my last test, because of the comments on, his, on, on my paper, I was with my, at the time, girlfriend, now uh, wife. He was basically talking about the job. He's like, you know, you should be a professor. Uh, he said, basically, they pay me to read and write for a living. Yeah. And, it's like, and I get to pick whatever I want to study, and they pay me to study that. And my wife you know, looked over at me, and she's like, you're going to do this, aren't you? He's done. It took a year and a half. You know, I had to make some money uh, for a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's basically my job is I get to yeah. pick any issue that's really interesting to me and and get paid to read. So. Well, the, the thing that's interesting to me about professorship is there aren't that many tenure-track positions in the country, yeah. uh, especially if you're in, like, liberal arts, which you are. Yeah. And I, I'm always fascinated by the roll of the dice when you finally get your Ph.D. and you're ready to go out there and look for jobs. And, man, okay, so what was that like? And as you first came to Fort Collins, I seem to remember you telling the students in our class that the people you were telling that to were worried that it was a town full of white supremacists. Yeah. <laughs> was that right? <laughs> yeah, no, there's something to that. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's tough having this job because people see you in this position, especially as a full professor or, or tenure track, and say, I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's tough, right? Like getting into a good Ph.D. program actually – you know, finishing your coursework and then actually finishing your dissertation, which again took me an extra year yeah. than it was supposed to. <laughs> uh, but then actually getting a tenure track job, but then actually getting, to, you know, each time you lose people, right? Yeah. So once you have the gig, it's a good gig, but it's hard to tell people, hey, go go to four years of PhD for this change. You know, so so it's tough. Well, and uh, at the end of it, with the with the jobs that are open, I think about one of my favorite professors that I had at CSU was Derek Sweet, yeah. and he was still working on his dissertation at the time. He's now, and I think, I, last I looked, he was still there. He's at Luther College, like in the small town in Iowa. Yeah. You could end up there, yeah. right? I mean, like, oh, yeah. and, and. Well, each, each, like when I was coming out, uh, you know, there was probably like four or five jobs across the country that actually fit what I was doing. Right. And, and most, you know, every once in a while you'll get a generalist job. You know, we just need someone, especially a smaller school. But most PSG jobs, like we want someone in this specific area. So I was actually out uh, looking for a job the year before I got the CSU job. Okay. Um, Got got some interviews. Went through those interviews. Got some great stories of those. Like I, 
could tell someday. Actually, in no, the, give me a snapshot of one. <laughs> huh? Well, I got one. You're not getting I, off that. I actually easy. got a job offer from University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. Okay. That I had, I, I was going to take. I had a, a friend in Milwaukee. I had a, a, a younger brother in Bloomington, Illinois, which is like you know an hour. Yeah, that's and a half not far. South. You know, I'm like, and Milwaukee's actually a pretty cool town. When it I visited, is. I've you know? been there. I love it. You know, so I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll take this job. So they call me on Friday and offer me the job vocally, and I'm taking it. And they say, yeah, well, so you'll, you'll, you'll get a FedEx on Monday with the documents, fill them in, and send it back in. So Monday comes and goes, and Tuesday comes and goes. <laughs> Wednesday morning, I get an email. They had a hiring freeze overall in the Wisconsin system. Uh. My paperwork was on the dean's desk, but he didn't sign it on time. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I don't have a job offer. Luckily, right at serendipity again, right at that point, one of my main professors at A&M left, got hired away by Vanderbilt, and they need someone to teach your classes. So they said, well, stay a year. We'll, we'll give you these upper-level classes to teach. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, so I end up staying, staying a year. And I still remember the moment because I, I have had family in Denver for you know, 20 years before I was here. We love Colorado. And I actually had done analysis once I decided to potentially say a Ph.D. from a master's. I, I, I grew up in Houston, lived in Dallas. I don't like big cities. Okay. So I didn't want to live in Denver, right? So I'd analyzed it. And, like, Fort Collins sounded like a really cool town in CSU. And so I had noticed that. The way it works is you're on this list of CritNet, like, you know, all communications. That's where the jobs come out. So when a job at CSU came out, and the job description was almost exactly what I was doing. It was yeah. like, oh, you know, <laughs> just okay, man up from job. heaven, right? There's my job, right? I just got to yeah. convince them to hire me, right? And what was that like? Yeah, that, yeah. It's, I mean, luckily I was, I was able, I was able to convince them. No, but like, what's the process like? So, yeah. because I remember they hired some new faculty when I was there, like second year of grad school, and I, I remember they everyone who was a candidate kind of took a tour and you know they they met all the professors they met a bunch of the grad students Dickinson told me when he was hired that uh, they took him and his wife to Canino's no. and his wife like wept because she's like is this the best Italian food in town <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, she she's like uh, a huge nerd for Italian food apparently so take me through like what that's like what what's the dance like what's the back and forth and. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the process start like, now that I know this side of the process, right? You know, so you put a job out there. You know, some jobs might get 20 applications. Some jobs might get 300, depending on how narrow. Right? Sure. Uh, my deliberation, when we, we've hired to, to help me, it's pretty narrow. There's not too many people that are doing deliberation stuff. So then normally but if you're like a, a media, if, if you're like a media professor, though, you're going to get a ton of applications, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So some of them, we, we, we get, you know, over 100 easy. Uh, so there's a committee, normally about three or four people that narrow it down, normally to 10, like a top 10, Jeez. they present that top 10 to the faculty. Then the whole faculty, tenure track faculty, pick a top three normally. Mm. So those top three get visits. Um, you know, so we'll bring people in normally for about a day and a half. Yeah. Uh, so they'll give a talk, a research talk. At some universities, especially if it's more of a teaching university, you'll actually have to teach a class. right? And then you'll have individual meetings with uh, all the faculty. And then often individual meetings with other people on campus, depending on your interests and connections. Sure. And at a smaller university, you might meet the president and those type of things. Wow. But, yeah, it's, it's a day-and-a-half-long interview. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing I remember most from those is you get back to your hotel room at night, and you just, like, crash. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, because you've on, been on all day. Yeah, oh. and, and, the, and the horrible thing is what I've always pushed for us is, like, let them do their job talk as early as possible. Yeah. Because then the individual conversations, you build on that. Right, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes I had my job talk at the end. Well, then I'm meeting you, and you're asking me my research, and I'm telling you about my research. But that's my talk, to, you know. Yeah, it's like, it's like so. Do the job talk first, so then they can expand on that and ask you stuff and build on it. And uh, but yeah, it's it's a you know, you'll have a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner, mm-hmm. and a 
uh, they're exhausting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, being on, I used to do these three-day trainings in my corporate gig, and I remember talking about this with a comedian. A lot of comedians, when they come off stage, huge adrenaline dump, and then it's followed by like a wave of depression, yeah. right? Does that happen to you? Because you're up in front of people a lot. No. Uh, how do you handle self-care when you're, when you're coming down from being on and no. facilitating these discussions? Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I think... I think part of the reason I don't tend to have the depression afterwards. Um, I'm better but, about it now because yeah. I recognize that it's coming, yeah. and I can almost cut it off at the head. Yeah. But no. but whereas before it would it would it was like a gut punch because you're coming down from being on and up, and then all of a sudden it all just leaves, and you go, oh my god, no. like I, ugh. I. I think probably what's different than what I do, like the talk I gave today. Hopefully that's a first step, right? Right. Hopefully there was people in that room that said. Okay, that, that's some important stuff. I need to start thinking that way. Uh, I had someone who's a, a, a city council person uh, come up afterwards saying, okay, we need to do this in my city council. You know, nice. So I'll probably give a talk to her city council here sometime in the next year and those type of things. You know, so I really designed that talk. At, the way I see that is you know, I've got an hour to convince them you need to think this way. And then hopefully they connect with me or they, they reach out and those type of things. So I think that's, you know, so when it's over, it's not over in a sense. Yeah, sure. The other thing I think most importantly for my self-care, and this was serendipitous to do, right? I mean, I rely on students for my work because I knew that's that's most of my job, right? If I tried to do this yeah. just on the side, there's no way, <laughs> right? I had to connect it to my teaching. Yeah. But it worked, it worked out better than ever. And, and partly what happens is every semester I get to introduce this to new students. And every semester I get at least three or four that a light goes on, that they're like, this is what I want to do with my life, right? Yeah. And that's what helped. I mean, if I was just doing this with volunteers, and, and I know friends that do this across mm-hmm. the country, this work is exhausting, right? Yeah. Trying to change how we talk about issues to be impartial in this world right now, you know, it's exhausting. Uh, but I get new blood every semester, mm. and I see that light come on, and I get to watch my students work. And that's, I think that's what keeps me going. It's almost like a contact high at that point. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's certainly. I, I mean, I, I certainly, when I was doing trainings for, for my corporate gig, I was equipping our employees to basically talk in a nuanced way about what they want to do or yeah. about what they do for a living. And to watch them go, oh, man, I know exactly how I'm going to talk to this person down the street, yeah. like who has been busting my nuts about whatever issue, right? And I'd watch them, and, yeah, you get to borrow some of that feeling, which, which is really, really cool. And I think one of the more underrated aspects of what we do, because do you ever struggle against this? Or hear this from your students where it's like, oh, so you're a speech major and you had to write a paper on a TV show you just watched, you know? And th- there, people want to diminish the scholarship of what we do. But what's funny is no matter what you do, I, and I found this with people that I've coached, the higher you ascend in whatever job you have, whether you're an engineer or an accountant or whatever, you're not going to be doing that thing. All you're going to be doing is communicating at that point. And so the fact that, that what we do is not regarded as the most important thing in the world really rubs me the wrong way in a vacuum sometimes. No, I, mean, I got into that a little bit at the top, right? And, and, yeah. and part of this was I taught a couple of capstone classes the last semester. So mm. I was dealing with that a lot, right? You had these communication majors that loved their classes. They were really interesting. But then now they're graduating and they have to sell their major and they don't know how to do it, Yeah. right? Uh, That's why I always come back. Right, right. And and their friends, you know, their engineer friends or science friends are making fun of them, but not a real major. Or or particularly business students. You get them from business students the most. Uh Like, they're so smug about what they do. It's like, okay, shut up. Go back to your Excel spreadsheet. Like, anyway. 
we show that there's this one report. People can Google it out there if you want. It's called It Takes More Than a Major. Uh, and I think they've just recently updated it, so it might have a different title. But but it was a research of, of, of employers. Like, what do you want out of your your, your new hires? Yeah. Uh, and, and one part of it uh, really looked at, had a long list of like 30 things that they reacted to of saying, do you think universities should do more of this or less of this? Right? <laughs> right. And if you look at the top nine of what they need to do more of, it's all stuff we do in the major. Right. It's collaborative <laughs> problem solving. It's learning how to kind of make sense of data. It's learning how to communicate by writing like orally and so forth. You know? How to articulate a viewpoint. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's what we tell them. You know, I, I tell those students, like, if someone asks you in an interview, why should I hire a communication major? I'm like, that's a softball. Like, you want that. That's question, the right? best one. But it's exactly what I was, I was saying in the talk. It's like, don't sell yourself as a good communicator. Because lots of people are good communicators, and people are naturally good communicators, right? A lot of business people, are internet, oh yeah, you know, they they're, they're, they can BS people, right? It's like the skill set. Hopefully, you've learned as a communication major is you can elevate the communication around you, right? You know how to ask good questions, you know how to design processes, you know how to deal with, con- you know, that's and that's the skill set. Exactly what you're saying that as you move higher in your job, that's yeah. what requires, right? It, it it is weird that that we have to defend what we do, but I go back constantly because I'm like, look. I am I am an ultimate success story out of this master's program. I use what I learned here, and actually the thesis that I wrote is the basis for all of my communications to this day. And and first of all, they're mind blown by that. I go, so you don't necessarily choose your topic. I think your topic chooses you. No. Once you sort of recognize that, then you can inform the rest of your life, if you choose to. I mean, some have perhaps greater applicability than others. But the other thing I tell them is, Look, what you've been doing now, especially if you're teaching public speaking, is project management. I mean, you are managing a long-term project, and your project is your students. At the end result of that, you've taken them from this point, and you've brought them to this point. That's business right there. That's all business is. It's incremental gains for whatever subset of issues that you're working on. So so it's always good, like, when we can get together and sort of kvetch about this, (laughs) which... Uh, is is really useful for me because it's a reminder that oh right I I may I may be missing the point when I'm talking to people about my potential services. Yeah. In terms of when you started at CSU. Oh, by the way, I want to come back to the white supremacist thing. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that? Uh, yeah. So that was just when I was telling one faculty member at A and M that I was uh, yeah I'm gonna good job at CSU in Fort Collins. He's like oh Fort Collins white supremacist capital of the world. I'm like wait what? <laughs> And I guess there's like one church in Laporte, kind of north of us, yeah. uh, that has done some stuff. Now, I, and we talked about this social. I, I don't know, I, maybe that, maybe not the first time I talked, taught it, which is when you were in there. But you know, I, I've taught social movements a few times over the years, and we normally actually have like a white supremacy section in there that we really think about that. So sure. I typically ask, like, does anyone know that? Uh, and sometimes you'll get a few white males in the room that had someone like walk up to him at a bar or something like that. Oh, really? Like, most of them don't even know that it exists up there. No, I mean, I, I no. certainly didn't know that, yeah. um, and that's not how, uh, how I associated the city. Although, perhaps uh, an issue that's reemerging here in 2018, yeah. which right. is pretty terrifying yeah. uh, in a number of ways. When you started, so, I mean, this was at CSU 15 years ago at this point, right? 15? Yeah, well, I started in 2003, and then the okay. CBD started in 2006, so okay. year. What's changed in that time? I mean, what, what are the biggest things that have changed for you and, and the way you approach this subject matter? Huh. Well, I mean, in some ways, when, when I started that transition from being more of a rhetorical critic and argumentation, kind of a, a, a critic, right? Like analyzing right. other people's and just kind of writing academic papers to a pra- practitioner. Well, and before you go on, when yeah. you talk to the Metro North Chamber here, yeah. you mentioned that that was going to be a pretty bleak outlook. 
uh, in terms of the way you look at the world. Yeah. If you were nothing but a critic and you were looking, just analyzing the way we were doing things at the federal level, yeah. that was going to be a pretty glum existence, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that was part of it. I mean, I, I had a couple. I, I often kind of tell the joke that I, mean, I grew up in actually a pretty conservative family. You know, small. Uh, I'm a first-generation immigrant, right? Oh, cool, um, yeah. Came, you know, my parents lived the American dream. Came here with not much and just worked like crazy and, and, and made it. Um, you know, they never went to college. All of their kids kind of went to college. You know, so I kind of grew up with that assumption: Hey, you work hard, you make it. Therefore, if you haven't made it, you haven't worked hard. You know, that was right. That, that what I was taught. That, that um, typical American myth, right? Yeah. And I, and I went to Texas A&M, which is a more conservative. Institute, and I was going to be a business major and so forth. And then that that class I took my last semester was a rhetoric of social movements class. Yeah. Um, we watched Eyes on the Prize there. That kind of blew my mind. Like, wait, <laughs> the world is not as simple as my dad told me, kind of thing. And then, so then I ended up going to grad school. At some point in grad school, like most good grad students, I became an angry Marxist, right? Just like angry at the world and everything's horrible and capitalism sucks and so forth. But then I eventually kind of realized of like, okay, being a critic's easy, right? Yeah. Pointing out what's wrong with things is easy. And, and maybe I'll get published, but it seems like it'd be a pretty kind of not, not the most interesting existence in the world. So part of, you know, with the, the project on the race initiative that introduced me to dialogue and deliberation, I started researching that kind of stuff and found that whole world. I almost had to give myself my own second PhD because really? uh, I was trained in something. And then all of a sudden when I got to, you know, so my first two, three years at CSU, I was learning a whole different discipline yeah. on my own that's much more hopeful, all about bringing people together, all about getting away from these simple narratives, you know, that I, that I had in my head both ways, right, right. Uh, when I was younger and then when I was a, a, an angry grad student for a while. Um, you know, so that was really you know, learning how to do that and kind of apply that. Um, is that, is that wow. ever exhausting being around that type of angry energy? Like with, with these pissy 22 year olds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I say that definitely includes me because I think about what I was like at 22 and 23 and I, I reflect on it. And I'm like, God, you were insufferable, like in a lot of ways. But I mean, and is that part of your function? I mean, to quote George Costanza here, we're trying to have a society, yeah. <laughs> right? And so taking that energy and sort of redirecting it from raw anger into yeah. more proactive uh, type of action, is, is that yeah. something you actively think about? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean certainly, uh, you know, academia, academia frustrates me in, in lots of ways, right? I don't tend to go to many academic conferences. I, mm -hmm. I very much more enjoy these practitioner conferences and these deliberation kind of interdisciplinary kind of things in a way. But... That being said, I think my department's been great to me. They, yeah. They've given me the flexibility to kind of create this new job, and they've certainly supported the CBD. You know, I think CSU in general, you know, this coming from, from President uh, Tony Frank, you know, they, they take that land-grant mission seriously, mm -hmm. that the university should serve the state and serve the community, so they've really opened up doors for, for me to do academia in a different way. Yeah. Um, but, but there's certainly lots of different places. I, I think academia has kind of created its, its, its own kind of environment in a way of, you know, these journals and that kind of stuff that is too insular. You know, you get rewarded for talking to each other a little bit too much. Well, yeah, and, and for acclaim from your peers, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Because I, I can't tell you the last time I opened up QJS. No. You know, it, and I, I'm someone who came out of that world. Like, I, I never got anything published. I never got anything submitted. I knew early on that my road was going to end after my master's program. No. But, I mean, I read plenty of those. You know, yeah. I'd read Western, and I'd read QJS and Southern, and, you know. And, and, and to give a club, a little plug here, so QJS is the Quarterly Journal of Speech, right. one of the most important journals in our field, and Dr. Kari Anderson, uh, who is now, uh, you know, is in our department, is now the editor oh, yeah. of QJS. Which so is so cool. She just took it over, so it's going to be much better now. <laughs> 100%. But what's funny, awesome. what's funny, though, is if you're your average person, you probably don't know that it exists, and there's going to be stuff in there that is going to matter and affect your life. 
Yeah. But sometimes it, it feels a little bit impenetrable yeah. if, if you're not already in the club. Yeah. And so yeah, is and that what you're describing? We put, you know, we, you know, NCA is the National Communication Association, the, the broader field for our work. Just maybe like four or five years ago, we actually created a new division within NCA called Public Dialogue and Deliberation. Uh, so we now have an academic home for the work that we do. So oh, that's, good. that's really exciting. But yeah, you know, one of the concerns overall academia and even my field was that it was kind of too insular. Uh, and especially for communication major, you know, my argument was like, our communities need us, right? Yeah. You know, we need to get out there and, and, and use some of these theories, yeah. not just kind of keep on developing enough. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we do that through our students and so forth. But, I mean, I really have a vision uh, of, of, I mean, I think the CBD is such a great fit for a communication department. I mean, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that faculty and administration at CSU understand our major more than almost any other university. Oh, wow. Because they see the CBD, right? They see that we're not just public speaking teachers. No, we're communication process people, right? We know how to elevate the conversation, you know, and and they see the importance of that. Uh, So I'm really pushing. I I feel every college in the university in the country should have something like the CBD. I think the communication department's a good home for it in some ways. And that becomes an arm. Because the other thing the CBD does is it brings together all the different kind of subfields within communication, right? I mean, it's about conflict management. It's about intercultural. It's about interpersonal. It's about argumentation. It's you know, all these <laughs> these classes that students are taking that they're getting the theory and getting the knowledge. Right. The CBD becomes this, okay, here's how you can apply it to real-world problems and really make a difference in your community or your organization. Right. Yeah. Here's here's the manifestation of all of the scholarship that you've learned out, out in the real world, which yeah. sometimes making that link. It feels a little bit too abstract, especially as you're, if you're an undergrad. No. You're like, okay, I don't get, I, I, I don't fully understand how this applies. Right. And it takes a long time. It took me a while to realize the way I was writing press releases and the way I was writing materials for clients was informed by my thesis, which is uh, once it's out into the world, once you release it, it no longer belongs to you. And intent, while interesting, becomes ultimately irrelevant. Right. You know, nice. what you need to start looking at is effect. And, you know, looking at, okay, so this said this, and I didn't mean for it to imply this, but now here's what's happened. Here's how this thing has taken on a life of its own. And I thought, wow, okay, that made me much more careful in the way that I write things. And and much more, it's funny, as much as I say intent doesn't matter, uh, it really does. Because in, in the, you know, let's go back to Cicero, right? In the invention canon, thinking about uh, the way in which you're going to structure something and trying to anticipate all the all the reactions to that, and it's like, which one do I want to be the preferred one, and how do I structure it towards that? So, con- and another another canon, you're thinking about audience, yeah. which is considered at every step of the process. So, it's funny. I'm 37. It took me probably 10 years after I graduated to put the pieces together like that, and then all of a sudden it was like Kaiser Soze, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I <laughs> I'm just Chaz Palminteri dropping the mug, going, "Oh my god!" Like this was all working on something of a subconscious level. Yeah. Um, yeah, was, you know the, the CBD went into capstone classes for a while. I was oh, right, like doing and an exit interview for for a lot of the students. And uh, so, and so that was the point I was going to make. Actually, yeah. the CBD is a much more like you short circuit that process a lot quicker, where you're not ten years down the line just in the shower somewhere putting the pieces together. You're actually almost helping them get there in in a more direct way. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think, I mean, not just the CBD. I think we, we got a lot of other uh, faculty that kind of make those connections. But we, but we learned a few years ago that, yeah, students weren't doing that on their own, right? Like the, the stuff that they were learning was very practical, but they weren't making that leap, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so we realized when we were asking the students, like, we want more practical skills. And the faculty were like, we're teaching practical <laughs> skills. And we just realized we just need to make a little bit more of a bridge there, right? Yeah. Uh, just make a little bit more of a connection in some of our classes. And like, okay, this is how this applies. Uh, so hopefully we're doing that kind of better. But, yeah, you know, and hopefully the CPD is kind of a, a big part of that, kind of pushing it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not going to ask you to redo your entire talk you just did from Metro <laughs> North. But you said it's what, you're, what you were basically describing. We were walking over here from there. We were just across the street. And you said that's essentially what my book is about. Yep. And, and you're, changing, you're, you're seeking to help change the way that we connect with each other. Instead of the, the adversarial polarized, you know, at the beginning of this talk, you, you ask people to uh, rank terms of how our public dialogue is. And the ones that came up were, you know, polarized and mean-spirited. Uh, mean yeah. Dominated by a few loud voices. Yeah. And so the entire talk was, how do we get past that? You know, how, how do we not talk past each other? How do we not shout over each other? Can you give a description uh, in a nutshell of sort of what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the work that I do is about process, right? So this big report that I just kind of finished, the title was Process Matters. And it's the notion of, of how you design a, a process for people to talk to each other is going to have a pretty big influence. Um, and a lot of my work lately has really kind of dug into social psychology and brains. So like, how do our brains work? And, and recognizing that our brains, unfortunately, are really wired for, for, for polarization. We're, we're wired. We like simple stories. Uh, so that once you understand that, then you look at most of the ways we engage people, you realize that most of our processes bring out the worst in us. Right. Uh, so what I try to do is, is kind of two moves. One, let's stop doing that. Right? Let's stop <laughs> doing these things that bring out the worst in us. Can and, you uh, not do that? Yeah. And then the second move is, okay, if we replace that with something that actually brings out the best in us. Um, so, and that's kind of the role of the CBD in Northern Colorado is, okay, we're, our job is to understand process and to be this impartial resource to really set up these better conversations. Uh, but long term, I'm also trying to, you know, the more, you know, not everyone's going to show it to our meetings, right? So the more we right. spread this across institutions and across the civic education of getting people to understand how your brains work and don't work um, and, and how, you know, how to think about issues kind of differently. One of the things that was fascinating to me was we're living uh, almost in a post-fact sort of uh, era here for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And one of the things I told the folks I worked with when I was designing my program was, look, the facts are on your side here. You have the wind at your back. And if that were enough, that would be great. None of us would be in here talking about how, how we talk about this. I say, finessing the approach matters. The way that you approach people, the way that you engage them. And I was struck by changing from the public meeting structure where one person after another gets up and sort of espouses their opinion, just shouts it into the bullhorn, and people hear it or don't to, to whatever extent they do. Whereas if you engage people and you're face-to-face -face and you're in a small group and you're sort of exchanging ideas in good faith, the light tends to go on more for people. What I said to these folks was, look, your neighbor, if they are considering this issue, they can think about all the facts in the world, but the thing that's probably going to stick with them most is their friend who sat down, heard their concerns, didn't dismiss them, and maybe they don't totally agree with you, but they have faith in you. Yeah. And so they're less likely to be adversarial anymore. Is that a, a fair encapsulation of... Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, certainly what we've learned 
you know, with, with a post fact, and you know, there's a I mentioned it briefly today. There's a report out there by the Rand Corporation called Truth Decay, which is you know available online. People Google it. It's a great turn of phrase, really, by the way. Yeah, no, I loved it. <laughs> um, uh, great title that uh, really kind of walks through kind of what's happened in some ways. But yeah, I mean, and sadly, because the way we talk to each other, um, you know, facts. I, I do agree with you. You got the wind in your back. You know, facts being on your side should give you an inherent advantage. But it's not that much of an advantage. No. Right? Um, you know, so you need good processes to mm-hmm. bring that advantage to kind of play in some ways. Uh, but, you know, looking at the research of what really changes minds, you're not going to change someone's mind by throwing facts in their face. No. And kind of shoving that that's actually going to backfire in a lot of different ways. What changes minds is a genuine conversation with right. someone that you, you trust. So how do we build those relationships? And, and that certainly can happen at the local level. Like people are engaging themselves in multiple levels uh, so they have some trust at the national level. You know, tip you, the people you disagree with are, are more kind of a caricature in your head. They're, they're not a real and person. And a total abstraction. And, and even, you know, practically looking at Washington, D.C., you've seen some significant changes on how, like, senators and representatives engage each other. They used to, you know, walk in, and have dinner together and be at a bar, and, and that changed, you know, in the 90s and so forth. Yeah. And people fly back home on the weekends, and so they don't know each other as people. Right. And, and that's where we've gotten even more of the polarization at the national level. Well, so one of the things that, that I also told people was it's okay if someone's wrong. Like, if you perceive them to be wrong, mm-hmm. people are entitled to be wrong, but it doesn't mean that they're crazy. Yep. And to me, that speaks to uh, some terminology that we haven't introduced on this show yet, but you talk about a lot, is wicked problems versus wicked people. Yeah. And so, you know, problems with energy development or healthcare or capital punishment or, you know, what time are high school students required to go to school, right? Those are problems. And the people on the other side, it doesn't mean that they're nuts, but, uh, you know, maybe they are wrong. Maybe you can come together, find some common ground, some shared values. doesn't mean they're bad people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that the Wicked Problems mindset is a big part of our work. Um, it's kind of hard to describe kind of briefly in a sense, but you know, the way I think about Wicked Problems is you're we're looking at the problem of what are the underlying values that people care about. Yeah. Uh, our brains are, are typically wired to kind of pick one value at a time and frame things as I care about this one thing. Um, so when you start kind of framing things as a Wicked Problem, it really opens up conversation, and it allows people to, to disagree um, without kind of hating each other or disagree without dismissing each other, thinking they're crazy, it's okay. Well, you know, you've got values that you care about. I care about those too. You know, I think my values are more important than yours. Uh, but then that—that's a negotiation. That's you know, you yeah. Can, um, you know, You're not a having a fight anymore, have. right? It's not that someone's rejecting your values. It's that right. they're focusing on a different set of values, uh, and, and that that really kind of sets things up for a much different conversation. But we don't get that. Certainly we don't get that from our national conversation. We don't get that from the, the dominant media framings. Right. We have to create those framings explicitly in a different way by people you know, that, that are focused on elevating the conversation versus just trying to win an argument. Right? Yeah, and I mean, it's, uh, it's a ton of work, yeah. as you said. I, what we're doing here... Uh, it's it's very easy to go to the default, you know, to to watch a cable news program or go to Twitter, especially. I mean, Twitter is 280 characters. You can get an encapsulated opinion in that. That's very easy, and in some ways, that feels good. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that—that's just—it's it's, it's dopamine hits, right? right. <laughs> you know, getting likes and those type of things, right? Yeah. You know, it is taking advantage of the brain in some ways of, of finding internet's great at bringing like-minded people together, no matter how freaky they think, right? <laughs> you know, um, but what we need to kind of deal with problems is bringing people that think differently together in a productive way. Right? Yeah. Given that that it is tough, I mean, by your own admission, this is not an easy thing to do. It's time intensive. It's labor intensive. It's 
It's uh, th- there are no easy solutions. You have to get people uncomfortable with, or I'm sorry, you have to get people comfortable with uncertainty, yep. which is quite the hurdle to overcome. I can see why it works so well at the local level because yep. these are people with skin in the game. And my dad told me, who did government relations for a living, he said, if you can do it at the county level, if you can work with county commissioners and actually get stuff done, you can do government relations at any level because that's where the rubber really meets the road. But I think there's a hunger for people to uh, engage differently on a larger scale, not just on the local level. So one of the questions that was asked earlier today was, how do you do that? And what's your vision for that? Yeah, you know, so what, how I answer that question is is more. You know, my my focus is at more at the city level, um, but not just my city, right? I mean, I'm I'm doing a lot of work of trying to replicate centers like mine and working with city government. You know, CSU is developing an MPA program uh, that that part of the focus is going to be kind of training city managers to think this way. And so my long term goal is that the more and more we get cities kind of changing the conversation and building their capacity. Uh, the easier it will be to change the national conversation. Partly because we'll have a, a new set of leaders kind of making their way up. You know, right. The mayors of the day being, being you know, city, uh, being, being state senators kind of later. Uh, but also, I think, I mean, the, the most kind of optimistic part of my work is we expose people to a different way of talking. They see that it works and they actually enjoy it. We make them work right. hard. It's exhausting. We get their brain to work in a different way, but they, but they see the value of it. Sure. Uh, and then they kind of start asking for more. So that's the, the, the hopeful. But there's also national organizations like the National Institute for Civic Discourse uh, that does this work, the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, you know, uh, the uh, Kettering Foundation, public, you know, there's these organizations that are working to kind of change uh, the, the national conversation. Bridge Alliance is another one that's really kind of trying to do some democratic reforms. How do we change? some things to, 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 to not have elections be such a divisive thing right. that kind of constantly tears us apart uh, and, and how do we kind of undo some of those negatives. One of the other concepts you introduced was cognitive dissonance, yeah. uh, which <laughs> I have a lot of because in particular this year, uh, the, Colorado had a loaded ballot yeah. and there were so many issues and I looked at that as a communications consultant I go, my God, this is going to be brutal yeah. message-wise, but very personally lucrative for me <laughs> <laughs> because I, th- there's money in the fight. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I recognize sort of I, I have two goals that are, odd, that are at odds with each other. One is that I want to provide for my family, and this is a good time to do that it, as far as what I do professionally. But as a society, this is not the best way to do it. Like, yeah. I, I think to myself, there's got to be a better way to run a railroad. And the fact that the most lucrative time of any cycle for me is going to be right around the time we come to these binary decisions. Yeah. I'm like, ugh. Yeah. I just I feel kind of gross about it. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I'm 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 Mr. Democracy in some ways of trying to get democracy to work and so forth. I hate referendums. Right? Yeah. I mean, from a communication perspective, a, a referendum, you know, so direct. I'm not a proponent of direct democracy. I'm a proponent of deliberative democracy. Deliberative sure. democracy <laughs> is, you know, we we have conversations and we work together. Um, and certainly when you have a referendum that's a yes-no issue, that incentivizes horrible communication message, right? Yeah. You know, how, how do you simplify this 30-second negative ad or, you know, uh, the little daily mailers <laughs> that you get in the mail and so forth? And, and those are framed, you know, so negatively and so simplistically. Well, and people go, I don't even pay attention to the mailers. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, of course not. You're not going to read it. That's not what they're designed for. They're, they're designed. It, you're, you're going to look at it for three seconds on the way to the trash, yeah. and it's designed with a headline in mind so that you remember just that. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a terrifying application of what we do. Yeah. Uh, we, we try to do a project. 
how many years ago was this? It was Amendment 66, which is the, the, the K-12 funding change. Yeah. So I think it was like four years ago or six years ago. Yeah, that went so, down in flames too. Yeah. So we wanted to try to do a process to help people have better conversations about this. Um, and so my, my job was to make sense of the noise, to analyze it, and kind of create documents that really kind of show the pros and cons. It was almost impossible, <laughs> partly because the campaigns, the, the, the yes campaign and the no campaign, waited until the last second. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they flooded the market. And most of what they flooded the market on both sides was crap. Oh, it was terrible. And I was trying to fact check, you know, and it was just this impossible thing of like trying to kind of, so yeah, so we, we've always wanted to be that resource, particularly, yeah. you know, I'm hoping to kind of expand across the state. So, you know, we, we've got some people at CU Boulder that do this. We've had some conversations with Metro and UNC, you know, and the idea is like, man, if we've got these CPDs ac- across the state, like when we have the state referendum, we can create some discussion guides and then, you know, people can run forums across the state for them. Um, but yeah, it, it was tough on that issue because everyone waited. <laughs> I can't find any arguments, and all of a sudden, it's like yeah. there was all this stuff out there, and it was it was hard to tra- track them down. All right, well, we got to wrap up here in a second. What's next for you and for CBD? Like, what's what's something that you haven't done yet that you want to? Well, you know, it, what's exciting is you know we we just actually added a new professor um, who's more of an expert in kind of dialogue and li- and listening across difference. Uh, so we're always kind of adding kind of new components to our work. Uh, we expanded significantly last year. So last June, we actually hired a full-time program coordinator, a former uh, grad student. Cool. Um, you know, so we're able to do a lot more. We're actually in the process now of, of transitioning somewhat that we'll be able to start charging for some of our services. Traditionally, we've always done it as a public service. Uh, but now we're getting asked to do so much and, and so much of the work that we do before and after. Uh, you know, so what the students do, we'll still kind of, you know, running the meetings will be, will be part of a kind of public service in a sense, but some of the professional stuff. So, well, so. and if you listen to the Joker, if you're good at something, you should get paid for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I actually got a joke from the beginning. It's like, you know, we're going to kind of do the drug dealer model. We'll do it for free. We'll get everyone hooked, and then we'll start charging for it. Right? <laughs> uh, but we think we have a pretty good product, right, which is, is yeah. helping people have the conversations they need to have to make this all work. Totally. All right. Well, now's when we do plugs. Martine, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they find out more about CBD? Yeah. yeah so, I mean, so it's the Center for Public Deliberation. Our website is cbd.colostate.edu. So you can go on there. we got a resources page with a lot of my, my writings and, and some videos on there um, kind of as well. Um, the other plug I'll give, the, the, the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, NC, so it's ncdd.org, is a national organization that does this kind of work. They're a wonderful organization. Uh, they're actually in the middle of uh, you know end-of-year giving and those type of things. And those kind of organizations, these networks of networks are always hard to fundraise for, right, because all the members are, have their own organizations. Uh, so I'll, I'll give a shout-out to them uh, for people to kind of support. But, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, you reached out to me and I'm glad you did because watching you give that talk to, to the leaders at Metro North was tremendous. It's been a while since I've seen you do that. And uh, I think you're doing excellent work and I wish you continued success. And I love that I worked in Aristotle to my talk to the North Denver Metro and then you worked on, you worked in Cicero to our talk. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, we, we geek out together. So that's good. All right. Thanks, Martine. All right. And that wraps up episode 203 of the John of All Trades podcast with Dr. Martin Parkinson. First episode of 2019, and I didn't even mention that we recorded it in Racine down in, like, the West Wash Park neighborhood. That's what all that background noise was. I forgot to mention it in the intro, but you probably figured it out soon. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. to be training, content, engagement, podcasting. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They're with me for another year. God love them. They are leveling up in the world. They just opened a Washington, D.C. office. So if you're doing anything online, 
Whether it's a campaign, whether it's social media marketing, whether it's online advertising, whether it's website building, Four Degrees can help you get it right. They will get the message together and then get it in front of the people who need to see it most. And for my money, none better. The number four, D-E-G-R-E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is on social media. Check us out at J-O-A-T-Pod. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else podcasts are available. I'm back here with a brand new episode next week. Stay tuned on Monday for First Job. Wednesday is when new episodes drop. And until I hear you again, have a happy and safe 2019. Say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.